0: or least for- oh. and now with I the- you and now with the-
1: That's let's let's stay. It's 2011.
0: I'm 14 and I go to a club for the first time. Don't worry, I went legally. The occasion, a small showcase for emerging British pop star Pixie Lot. I was rambunctious as any stan would be before what stan culture as we know it existed and stood in line brainstorming chants that professed my undying love for Pixie Lot. The line outside the club was an undeniably convivial one Fans, all in the infancy of our teenagehood, exchanged phone numbers, added each other on Facebook, and forged friendships based solely on the intensity of our fandom. Our friendships emerged from the preponderance of lyrics we could memorize, how many unreleased demos we had downloaded onto our iPods via Megashare, the great extents we did to express our devotion. By the time the doors opened to the club, which has since undergone various reincarnations. We had forged lifelong friendships. At least we thought so. The club was not big, looking back. But then, it felt magnificent. I start to recognize the bar stools, the gleaming poles, the dormant lighting fixtures, paraphernalia I thought was only reserved in the mythology of my high school seniors. These were the things of fairy tales. Me and my newfound friends made our way to the foot of the stage, a measly stanchion separating us from Pixie Lot. The show began, and the blonde and bubbly pop star made her appearance. We belted our hearts out, at times drowning out her voice completely. In one of the songs, she reached out to me, our fingers making first contact. This was the start of my nightclubbing experience. Hi everyone, my name is Siddhant, and welcome to Feminist Sonic Futures. I bring to you my debut podcast, Nightclubbing. The title of this podcast is inspired by the incomparable Grace Jones' seminal album of the same name. I want to start this series as an experiment in joy, a term black feminist and performance artist Gabrielle Seville coins. A way for us to see how we can make space for joy in a time that seems relatively absent of it. My experiences of growing up in Singapore's nightlife culture came to mind as visceral and unmediated moments of joy. It's the dance music I grew up listening to that foreshadowed my 5am nights in the club. It's dance music that has brought so much joy to groups in the periphery. A hopeful helplessness. In this time of dissonance, maybe joy and dance music is the only way we can mark a certainty. Every week, we'll be deep diving into how dance music evolved in different parts of the world. This project is one that would not exist without collaboration. We may be isolated, but it is important for me to keep connected. Not only am I collaborating with friends who are interested in the topics we're diving into, but I'm also urging them to collaborate with their family members as a way of connecting with potentially lost lineages of sound and culture. What did you grow up listening to? It's a question we don't ask nearly as much as we should. I want our stories of sound, music, and heritage to be documented as an unofficial pedagogy of joy, a way of history making, a means of which we make sense of the past before charting on our increasingly uncertain futures, give vocabulary, beat, rhythm, groove to an untethering temporality, make sense of our future nostalgia. Welcome to nightclubbing. This week we deep dive into my homeland, India. It is beautiful and messy and complicated, and something that can't be given justice to in one episode. So I'll be splitting up my discussion about India in three to four parts over the upcoming weeks. Our journey starts in the late 70s and 80s, a time of seismic change for India and the world. The musical developments of the country ran parallel to the socio-political and economic changes that were unfolding in the subcontinent to say that the 80s were a grim time for india would be an understatement in many ways music and the world around us are not two separate entities in fact they work very much in symbiosis and that's why it's my intention with this podcast to to analyze some of the social and political changes that occur in different parts of the world so we have a better understanding of how music has evolved over time. The political and economic reforms that developed in a post-independence India were defiant reactions to the legacy of British colonialism. In the Nehru years, India saw widespread land reforms and the nationalization of major industries. However, the global recession in the late 1970s saw India's economic growth stagnate. Coupled with a growing state inefficiency, it left many Indians disillusioned with the failed promise of a sustainably functioning socialist India. The 1980s saw a shift in the interests of the government, opting to liberalize the Indian economy, radically shifting its culture and politics. While globalization saw the importation of Western styles, aesthetics, and political ideologies, There were also movements that saw a revitalized interest in Indian classical music, a growing fascination with a pan-Indian identity, and Hindu revivalism. The way that India has permuted globalization is not unilateral – nothing in India is for that matter – and it's important that we acknowledge its inherent heterogeneity. The confluence of these forces are integral in articulating the way that dance music and subsequent nightclubbing cultures were forged. So, how does this all have to do with music? Well, today I'm joined with a close friend of mine, Rhythm, a fellow Brown University student. She's coming in live to us from Baroda, Gujarat.
1: Hi, um, my name is Rhythm. I'm a rising junior at Brown. Um, I'm from India and I live in Baroda Gujarat. It's a small ish city. Um, I study sociology for now. And yeah, I was like, I'm really excited about it. We just got really excited about like disco and the nightclub scene of the 80s in India. And we decided to like go down this rabbit hole that has been super interesting. So now we're going to talk about it. I think.
0: Yeah. So just for some context, So me and Rhythm have now been in a class together for two semesters, back to back. Um, And I guess I just want to know two questions from you. The first question is, and I write this in my very pretentious introduction, which I'm like listening back to and I'm like, oh my fucking God, like podcasting is so hard when you have to like script shit, (laughs) you know, like genuinely is um whatever we're here Uh, but my first question is for you is I feel like the question what did you grow up listening to isn't a question we ask each other enough and so I want to pose this question to you and for everyone who's listening to Rhythm what did you grow up listening to
1: okay yeah um so I have an elder sister, and she's like six years older than me. And I think my first, like, earliest memory of listening to, like, music properly is perhaps when she was, like, in high school and she had just gotten an iPod Nano. I think that's what it's called. Um, And it was just, like, this um, music player and she used to listen to a lot of, like, Avril Lavigne Taylor Swift, a lot of cringy, like, pop. And I was pretty young. I was, like, um, how old was I? I was perhaps, like, eight or nine when I consciously, like, started listening to music. Um, And because I used to, like, mimic everything that she did, I used to, like, steal her Nano and pretend to be, like, an edgy teen and listen to, like, Avril Lavigne. But um, honestly, also, like, just grew up listening to a lot of Hollywood music. Um, So on one hand it was just like this kind of pop that's like westernized um, pop that's catered to like this young adult teen um, demographic and on the other hand it's also like Bollywood music that was so close to um, well it's so close to like my like a part of like my Indian culture. Uh, Other than that I used to also like my dad is really into music he plays a a lot of like instruments Um, so I know I grew up listening to like a lot of really really old Bollywood songs as well Um, they used to just like play on the radio or my dad just like hums them a lot and at this point it's just like I have these flashbacks at certain points in time where my dad will play like a really obscure old Hindi song that I wouldn't have like heard before Um, but I remember like listening to it when I was really young so that's. Yeah, that's some of the music that I grew up listening to. Pretty mainstream, pretty common.
0: And was this influenced a lot by what your parents listened to? Were you able to find out, you know, however brief it was about maybe some of the music your parents listened to as well? Um,
1: Yeah, for sure. I think music... um, apart from like other things that i would have ventured into um by my own explorations i think my introduction to music was fairly and largely influenced by just what my parents and my si- mostly what my sister was listening to um somewhat what my parents were listening to um uh, a bit of it also just what my friends would also listen to i think um i remember i got into like listening to one direction as a fan solely because like of a- few of like my friends used to listen to them a lot and that's when I got into like boy bands and stuff. Uh, so yeah I think my introduction to music um or like actively listen to music was not through my own. It was just through like other people. But that has definitely evolved a lot um, after like high school. Like I really got into music at the end of high school for some reason.
0: And I'm sure we'll unpack this a lot more in this episode and further episodes. But I really now just want to deep dive into the disco dream of India, disco dream Mm -hmm. of the 70s and the 80s. And, you know, both of us have found a deep interest in this and have found it a very necessary avenue for us to to explore, and so I want to just know what, what your takeaways are from researching about the Indo- uh, in Indian disco dream. And if you could talk a little bit about um, some of the musical influences of the time and some of like the great musicians of the time, too, that kind of influenced this movement that um, brought together the East and the West in terms of sound and aesthetic?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, So I think disco in India, like got really, really famous in the 80s. Like, I mean, we already talked about that. Um, And that was mostly because disco was like dying down in America and like um, the West, perhaps like at the end of the 70s. And in the 80s, there was just a really, large influence by like western music and like western culture and western art and media um and especially like our film industry was heavily influenced by it our music industry was getting influenced by it so i think in the early 80s we discovered disco as something um that was perhaps um easy to well not impersonate but i think it was easily adapted into our own um music identity i think disco with sort of if you think about it and look at it from the point of view of indian bollywood music as it existed before or indian dance music i think it's um it was quite close to what people were already listening to so it was easy, easy like became quite popular um Bapulari was like the king of disco he was like try, he was making a lot of music for like the bollywood film industry um there was also nazia hussain who um became like one of the female playback singers or female singers that used to sing a lot of like disco songs um some of the more um Non commercial, non mainstream artists that we found on like research and like on deep dives that I honestly did not know before were like Asha Putli or Charanjeet Singh. Um, but one of the main like players who was influencing the Bollywood industry as well as the non commercial music, like the non commercial disco that was being made, was um, this producer called Bidu Um And he's just just really cool. He, he was sort of the one that um, got Nasya and like found her and started making like music with her and made her and her brother famous. So these are sort of the main like players and there was um, Lakshminath Pyarlal or like Adi um, Barman, just more people getting like more influenced by it started making like music on their own within the industry.
0: For sure. I think um, one thing that I discovered in, in my research and, you know, just with our conversations too, was um, as much as disco had a huge impact and was very much, um, you know, permuted through the system of globalization that was kind of emerging in, you know, out of the 60s into the into the 70s and into the 80s, um, was that Even then, disco was still a pretty niche kind of like genre in India, and I think um, you know one thing that I do highlight is that there's such a heterogeneity in the way that India um, processed uh, globalization in a lot of ways, and I feel like that's like a that's like a very interesting. Thing and a very important thing for me to to highlight, especially as we go through this series. Um, so one thing I, I, I really wanted to pick up on, you know, just based on on what you talked about, was um, a lot of these these new disco um, stars were generally, uh, you know, the voices of, of the of these disco classics were women but um, the producers behind them were typically men and uh, the producers garnered a huge acclaim you know a lot of the producers that you you mentioned earlier are still you know huge staples to this day and are known as the kings of discos the kings of disco um, in india Um, so what do you make out of this kind of like um, protege and mentor relationship or this guru-student relationship that I think could be drawn between the voices of Disco versus the producers of it in India.
1: Mm, yeah, that's pretty interesting. Um the kind of like guru complex or like Guru Shishya relationship that has perhaps um evolved from our understanding of classical music that is um so deeply like entrenched in or like Carnatic music or Hindustani classical music that's so deeply entrenched in like, Indian culture um, I think based based on just like how Nazia Hussain or um, Asha Patli or even Rupa from like that beautiful disco jazz album that you discovered Um, what's interesting in their stories is just how they were these like undiscovered homely um, women that were singing recreationally and just were by chance like discovered by these like music producers and like big music producers that were perhaps like on the lookout for talent and like found by chance like found these like um, women who never formally thought about like entering the industry and that could perhaps point to their like short presence in the industry as well. I think that um intention behind making it big or like that intention of like you know being present in the industry from the start um perhaps didn't exist. I think that also just points to the kind of um culture and the kind of relationship or just the patriarchal nature of how um women in this sort of like a workforce or this sort of like an industry weren't weren't allowed to like flow so freely within it i think um as a lot of other industries it was like pretty much a man's world and women couldn't enter as freely um unless they were sort of brought in and sort of ushered in by these like, well, I wouldn't say gatekeepers, but just these men that um, were already established, already had a strong presence and perhaps um, just like a big role to play in bringing all of these women in. I think uh, that was just the nature of a lot of like women being new to like entering the workforce and like leaving, you know, homes or like domestic duties or like stereotypically domestic duties that have perhaps like imposed upon them within a culture. I'm sure that's not true for everyone, but that is um, as it stands now, even like the industry is just terribly hard to get into um, unless there is like a strong person bringing you in or like a strong connection bringing you in. and I feel like that was just true for what happened to her as well. And it happened with multiple women like that. So,
0: Yeah, I think that's a really important point to bring up. Um, I think, as we discussed earlier, um, the 70s and 80s were a huge turning point for not only the world, I mean, not only for India, but for the world, right? Um, I think it w- it was the time where... India opened up its borders um, economically, and you know that ushered in a lot of cultural and and political changes for better and and for worse. I think one part of that is um, a kind of new economy that w- that was provided for women to participate in and I think um, this very much relates to the conversations. Um, surrounding agency that that you brought up, that um, we can't talk about Indian pop music, we can't talk about disco music without talking about Indian film. You know, in in many ways, the music industry in India is inseparable from the film industry. They're very much one and the same, right? Um, And I feel like... This is something that I definitely want to parse through in further episodes, but um, in a lot of ways, I feel like this very inextricable tie between music and film, one which is so sonically um, embedded, one one which is so visually embedded, um, creates an interesting uh, dissonance. And so I, I really want to discuss this article um, called Voice, you know, aptly by Amanda Weedman, and she brings up a lot of interesting points. And she basically, um, in the opening of our argument, talks about um, the materiality of voice, and especially how that's conceptualized within the Western context. So I'm just going to quote her in her article here. And um, she says this, the binary set up In the Western philosophical and linguistic thought between the signifying authorial voice and the bodily material vocality was closely articulated with the social project central to Euro Western modernity. I think this is something to really um, point out because um, I think within a Western context, there seems to be a um, disembodiment in in a weird way between. Voice and and the person, or rather, an over embodiment, and um, I feel like that contradicted itself. But you know, hear me out here. <laughs> um, I guess I guess what I'm trying to say is, um, if I were to just like you know taking it away from abstract terms, I think about it how how it's kind of weird that like in a Hollywood film. That if they're doing a musical or there's a film with um with you know you know um, songs in it, they expect the actors that they cast to sing in it, even if they're completely shit at singing. Like I'm thinking of Mamma Mia. That was like one of my first, you know, like <laughs> very apparent. Oh, like, like, Mama why Ma-ma are Ma-ma, you yeah. making Pierce Brosnan sing? Like, why are you doing that? <laughs> like, tell me straight up, why are you doing that? Do you know what I
1: mean? <laughs> yeah. And,
0: um, and it, it, again, it was such a disparate contrast to what I had also grown up with w- w- in Bollywood, where every single, um, you know, movie was vo- every single song in the movie was voiced by a playback singer, and that mm. never seemed to to upset me, or the idea of authenticity didn't really like register in my mind. Could you speak to that, and also for maybe the audience listening, who's not like you know maybe familiar with it? Could you describe what like a playback singer is and what their role is in the film industry, from from your knowledge?
1: Um, yeah, I think oh, like you said, like you rightly said, um, there is that sort of a distinction. Oh well, just. A display of an Indian actor on screen that is in their music and in their songs that are not that they are not like voicing out those songs of their own. I think um playback singers in Bollywood are like a big thing because there is just um this sort of like distinction in the way that actresses and actors on screen are produced for perhaps a consumerist gaze. I think um they, playback singers sort of exist outside of the screen. They just like exist in like studios where they'll record their like vocals, their, you know, multiple singles will like record like songs. And then these are sort of played back. And um played back on the movies in which there are actors that lip sync along to these songs, and while they're lip syncing, they would perhaps like dance along to it, and that there's like a whole like set. Um, and just like playback singing emerged as like a profession in like the 1950s, where it's I think personally, I think female playback singers were allowed to enter like this profession a lot more freely because there's um, um a lack of that consumerist case that is or just like a lack of that commodification or object of objectification of the female body. It's a lot more like respectable uh, or produced in like a respectable sense. Um and it was just much more permeable. It was just a much more permeable sphere and space for women to come and display their talents but not be, you know, produced on screen and not be looked at. Um, and yeah, that's you know, it just became like really popular in the 1950s. I think it just like became like a big like career opportunity for a lot of women and um like a chance for them to enter the industry, but not really.
0: I think that's a really great point that in many ways being a playback singer for a lot of women in a um increasingly um growing economy was um an ability to be heard but not seen in in many ways right and I feel like that that works on on some, on a, a lot of multiple levels and it is very complex um but I think it did provide an economy and autonomy um, to women who were looking to um, engage in the arts. Um, and I think one thing that I find very interesting reading um the case studies that um, Amanda Weidman has done is um, you know, talking to several. Um, playback singers and um, one of them notes that um, uh, Weedman was talking to a famous um, playback singer and she said um, she, her, her daughter-in-law, she also interviewed her daughter-in-law and her daughter-in-law uh, stressed that in order to perform well she must forget herself and become one with the character that she's portraying. The playback singer maintained in contrast that singing on stage or in studio requires you to not forget who you are. And I find this like honestly something that that, that feels, that's, feels pretty revolutionary in a way of um, at least in the, in, in the context of, of conceptualizing um, Western art that um, you, you must separate yourself from the art when, you know, even if you're playing um, multiple characters, you cannot forget your role, you cannot forget your place, you cannot forget yourself as, as an artist and a, um, as an orchestrator of these different medias. And I just thought this was like a very interesting idea that like challenges some of the normative ideas of agency and voice Mm -hmm. that we think about in um, a Western context. So um, I just think that's really interesting. Um, uh, What's the next thing I'm going to say? yeah, I guess I was also wondering too if, um, and we kind of went back and forth about this on in our notes, but um, I wonder if some of the more niche or not as commercially ubiquitous um, disco singers of, of the 80s, such as Nazia, Hassan, um, Asha, Bushle um, were reconciling this binary between the consumed actress and the faceless playback singer, and I want you, I wanted to know what you thought about this this dichotomy, um, you know, between the the um, attractive, beautiful um, actress that is that that's um, intended for. Kind of mass consumption versus the faceless and quote-unquote respectable playback singer.
1: Yeah, um, like you said like I think um, it's interesting to discuss this new form of like autonomy that um, comes with just playback singing being this like idea of not forgetting who you are I think that stands very true for the kind of music styles like you said like Kasha Posley, I think is just um popularly like recognized just by the style of music that she sang in that was you know that sultry like um it's just very identifiable and I think um that points to perhaps their success as well their ability to bring in something that's like unique through their voice but i think that becomes like really true for their successes like playback singers but also just i think going along with like culture and like identity i think playback singers were cast in like a very strong um pure and untouched and respectable role that was not perhaps afforded to a lot of like actresses that were um like you said create um per- performing for mass consumption i think they were there is this perception of an actress as like someone that something that's consumable something that's sexy something that's like beautiful or like good to look at while um playback singers are not as easily objectified um and a consumption of that happens through not through like, you know, a visual sense, it's um, a lot more auditory and I think um, there is just something about that I think uh, the stigmas perhaps attached to performing as sexy, performing as something that is, someone that has agency for their own body versus the dichotomy of Speaking with like that sexiness or that sultriness, or um, these voices that are playing back and evoking some sort of an emotion that is bold or some sort of an emotion that is um, non commercial or not as mainstream. I think um, those playback singers were afforded a lot more. Um, I'm looking for the word like a liberal and like a lot more loose uh, they're treated with like a lot more of those concepts like loosely i think that is there was just a lot more space for them to experiment with what they wanted to do and not be given a lot of flack for it um and i think that was really interesting just seeing the kind of voices and seeing the kind of um various styles in which singers and playback singers especially females were singing and producing in versus the kind of um homogenous and the kind of standard uh assumption of an actress existed on screen because you had to really fit into like those strict like boundaries and you had to really stick to like those strict rules and regulations that come with what a visual of like an Indian woman looks like while there was just like a lot more free space and ability for singers to experiment with what they wanted to do with their voice, because it wasn't as harshly like judged, I believe.
0: Yeah, I do think that in a lot of ways, um, sound and kind of the intangibility of sound in a lot of ways that, um, and kind of exists in a dimension of its own, allows for a lot of liberatory potential. And I think that's the reason why we're doing this this podcast to begin with. I think that sound has a lot of, um, you know, um, potential for, for freedom in a lot of ways. But, you know, I think I want to go back to the idea of, of agency, and I want to bring up something that we talked about in our class together. And I think it's important to me too, to stress in this conversation that, as much as there were definitely, you know, immense institutional limitations on on women um, in India at this time period, um, this did not render Indian women as disempowered. You know, women, you know, women in India still found ways to resist. Women in India still found ways of asserting their autonomy. And I think that's an that's, um, important thing to highlight. And I think, you know, one thing that I've thought about too, at least thinking back on my childhood and the movies that I grew up loving um, in Hindi cinema, um, you know, a question that percolates is, what does it mean to have a female voice be the center of a soundtrack? Especially when a soundtrack in, in something as important as the film industry in india um you know wh- you know what does that mean what does it mean that a female voice is at the core of that
1: mm. yeah i think i think it's really interesting that you say it's yeah it's definitely not um a disempowered feeling i don't think um that should be the takeaway i think that it's just something to be said about like systematic barriers that did um hinder that sort of expression that uh definitely did exist in a lot of institutions i think as much as we were being influenced by the west like um there is just there were just like really strong rules and like really strong like stigmas and stereotypes associated with these professions that um Perhaps didn't allow for a lot more of that expression, but that expression did did definitely exist, and I think that's that's like that's what's super cool about um women so it's women sort of being like at like you know the center of a soundtrack or like women just gaining like mass popularity like I think um it just speaks for itself in the way that these that is like there was so much so much of this talent that existed that um, perhaps didn't have so many avenues for experience. when it did you could just see the resonance, and you could just see the amount of impact and effect that it had on people. Like I think, um, just the way in which like female playback singers like Asha Bhosle or Lata Mangeshkar or Shreya Ghoshal now, just the way in which they are revered and um, heard, is it just there's just like so much behind it in terms of them. Um, Establishing like this strong foothold in an industry that is otherwise going against them in so many ways, um, and that's why it's just like super cool to listen to these like female voices um, on a side of soundtrack and like seeing what they can do and the kind of ranges that were present in a relatively young and a growing industry. Like I think um, a lot of it is also just the way music in India like worked. I think it was, uh, like you said, a lot more heterogeneous and there was just like a lot more space for experimentation. And once they allowed for that experimentation to come out, like we could see what these women could do.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think um, one of um, you know the great things for me in this project was discovering not only well-known Um, female voices in this sphere but like you know undiscovered ones like um women who didn't necessarily um get the credit got the credit that they deserved at the at the time that they they released their music and um i don't know it was it was really great for me to see this kind of like reclamatory um nature of discovery. I think in the ways that we think about discovery in a lot of ways um, are, um, you know, incredibly derived from colonialism and imperialism and conquest. And, um, but I think in a lot of ways, too, for those who are colonized um, and those who are trying to get in touch with or reconnect with their cultures, discovery can be one, a process that is extremely healing. Um, and, and that's, that's what I found, um, as well. And so I want to move on to, um, the idea of, um, of the disco, the disco as a space or the nightclub as a space. I mean, I don't know about you, but you know, my parents have never gone clubbing. They've never really experienced what a disco is firsthand like i was really the first you know generation to do that
1: i mean how about you yeah no um my parents were also like present in um a lot more traditional families but um they never really went to like nightclubs or um just these like spaces where disco was not only being like listened to but also like danced along with i think they only did the act of like listening to disco and they did that like a lot like i think when i was talking to my mom she was just like yeah like in the 80s um her her father used to just bring home these cassettes of what was popular at that time um and it was you know in the 80s that was disco so she grew up like listening to a lot of that, along with watching those movies, you know, like I said about or like we talked about, um just um along with disco being popular as a um, music or like something that like we were listening to, there was also this visual component of the kind of subculture or the kind of sensibilities attached to like disco being viewed. Like I think um on screen there were artists like Rishi Kapoor and Mithun Chakraborty. that were Um, embodying that kind of disco, giving it their own steps to like, you know, the kind of dance moves that were famous. These movies got really famous because you could see them perform that disco, the kind of aesthetics of dress and um, other like just maybe even like colors, like um, bling and like glitter and just the groovy aesthetic of that came along with like disco um, was also super popular then because, you know, television is becoming really popular um, and television like brought, like, you know, you could watch Bollywood movies and so you could see, like, what that disco meant. Um, I think disco uh, in its, like, sensibilities was characterized by ideas of, like, materialism, romanticism, um, eroticism, like, it just, gets like these inspirations and and then portrayed that um, as some sort of like a physical and some sort of an aesthetic feeling along with just the auditory listening, the tempo, the beat. I think those two things went a lot in hand and that was sort of you know disco subculture. I think like hip-hop sensibilities, I am thinking like disco sensibilities. Um, And that definitely existed. That's true for like a lot of other um, music that got famous in India in the subsequent years too.
0: Yeah, I think, um, you know, you're segueing to a great point. Um, I want to bring up a, you know, fantastic article. I read um, a fantastic, I should say essay the other day. Um, called in defense of Disco by um, queer Marxist scholar Richard Dyer. And he really makes a case for <laughs> disco in in this piece and really um, reconceptualizes the dance floor and the nightclub and um, disco culture as a whole as a place of utopia as a place Mm -hmm. of utopia for marginalized communities, for queer people, for black people, for brown people, for um, those who are on the outskirts of society. And like you were mentioning, he defines the characters of disco um, with with, with three things, uh, eroticism, romanticism, and um materialism and i think he tries to break down some of these capitalistic um conceptualizations of like the dance floor and what clubbing culture should be and what disco is but also concedes with it you know um he mentions how disco is not necessarily a subversive take on capitalism um, as it still is produced by capitalism, um, you know, as it's a product to be consumed, but still, um, it's still used by as a as an identity marker of so many marginalized communities, and has, um, you know, invariably subversive intentions as well as reactionary implications. And I, I feel like this is something that's um, that that was like very poignant to me, you know, as someone who is. who is queer and has also grown up in a um, nightlife culture is this weird balance of feeling both, you know, subversive and transgressive and against the norm, but also incredibly feeling like you're like contributing to an extremely like capitalistic and misogynistic way of being. Um, And, you know, I just think, um, I feel like in this series, Nightclubbing, we're definitely going to, you know, parse open this essay a, a lot more. Um, but um, I do, I do want to, you know, um, quote um, Richard Dyer in, in One Thing. Um, and, and he says, if this sounds over the top, let one thing be clear. Disco can't change the world make the revolution. No art can do that. And it is pointless expecting it to. But partly by opening up experience, partly by changing the definitions, art disco can be used. To one which to which one might risk adding the refrain. It feels good. Use it. So how do we feel about mm-hmm. this? About how, you know, disco can't change the world, how art can't Necessarily spark the revolution, but it exists as this kind of utopian sensibility um, for of hope. How do you feel about that?
1: Mm, I really like that. I think um just speaking like beyond disco, like I think just the mention of the fact that you know he says that no art can do that. Like I think that is making that some sort of a point. That while I think we. Um, exist with the recognition and um the understanding that anything or a lot of what we do exists within the capitalistic systems and the materialist systems that um no matter what we do, follow everything, like they're present there, but um put into context, like I think there is something about that experience that reckons with the fact that we live in this like world and that we exist within highly material, highly consumerist spaces, but there are that those things do you know something, those things do provide and bring along with them certain experiences that are definitely like if accessed or if um found, I think, do provide us with this like sense of like a utopia. Like I think that is a really that's a really interesting conversation in terms of how one might argue that capitalism and materialism banks on that exact feeling. You know, the fact that these experiences around us and the fact that we gain something from these experiences um drives that system further. I think it does like like takes that away from it. But even then I think when when he mentions the idea of like if it feels good, use it, you know, if it is some sort of an experience that um gives you that space of joy, gives you that space of expression, then I think um we should give that to ourselves. I think. Uh, any sort of art or I mean I might be saying this very loosely, but a lot of art is in a way um, escapism. It is in a way trying to channel some sort of feeling, trying to evoke some sort of an emotion that we perhaps don't find a uh, lot around us. And I think that, you know, falls true for disco as well. Like you said, he grew up in the nightclub culture. There is, there was this, um, space for some sort of expression a space for you to establish and um perform your own identity that you found um to be subjugated in like other spaces like i think um we saw this beautiful film the other day by liz emma that's called Daytimers, um and it's it's just it really points to like that idea that there were these just daytime raves in the uk um long ago and it is just a space for like south asians and south asians that, that belong in that diaspora to come and um perform their own identity that is not not going along with what's you know usually expected of them but also is created and constructed around identities that they know like these raids existed like in the day dance because you know Indian women or South Asian women weren't allowed that freedom to like move out of the house in the night but they still wanted to engage in this nightclub culture and so they found these spaces to dance to like disco music and to dance to like a particular kind of music in the daytime and was just um, they got that space to like perform their kind of dance, the kind of dance that they wanted to that was perhaps um in their otherwise racial spaces or in their otherwise um areas that they exist in, they weren't allowed to like freely um emote that way uh and I think I think that's just that dichotomy exists in a lot of spaces, and disco isn't one to move away from that or isn't one that you know that falls outside of that sphere i think it's just a good example of the kind of dichotomies that we inevitably um have to deal with but that we can perhaps you know critically understand and try to take away from
0: yeah thanks for that um that was really Weirdly touching in a way. It might because I'm a bit turned. I don't fucking know. Um, but it it made me think back to um, a book that I just finished reading. It's a honestly, it's a book length personal essay by a um, Singaporean writer and poet, Trisha Lowe. And in the book she talks a lot about um, what it means to be at home, and what it means to create a utopia. And um, I just want to bring up something that that she wrote, um, and I feel like it's very much in line with what we've discussed in, in class. Um, well, here it goes. What if imagining an alternative universe, if imagining a utopia, was a way to actively destroy this world? To make it disappear, if only for a moment. And you know, that's something I've never really thought about. I feel like the idea of destruction, um, just like linguistically, I I associate with a dystopia, you know, like the opposite Mm -hmm. of a utopia. Mm -hmm. Um, But I never thought of a, a utopia, you know, especially for marginalized people, right, as a resilient and active mode of defiance and destruction um, mm. to the um, worlds we're living in. And um, in our class where me and Rhythm are in a class th- about decolonization um, and and, and um, imperial violence, and, you know, it's an amazing class. Um, but we've often talked about in the class about how the, the, um, the outcome and mission of colonialism was to not only plunder objects and, um, you know, disseminate an ideology, but it was also the destruction of worlds. It was the destruction of communities. And I feel like Trisha Lowe's um, kind of, you know, exploration of utopia is kind of a, an interesting um antithesis of of this colonial order you know it's offering destruction as a um, reclamatory tool and mm-hmm. i just want to know what what you thought about that though uh about, thought about that quote and what you thought about um this this idea of ut- utopia and um, utopia in relation to destruction mm-hmm
1: yeah i I really resonated that. i've actually been like i was precisely thinking of that when I was like doing this like research in these um in our pursuit of or in just like our exploration of these certain like utopias like i think um, right now, which just like the pandemic um around us and the things that we're reckoning and the world we're reckoning with these days. I think a lot of people. Um, slightly cringy, I don't know, but like I saying that, oh, you know, what if the dystopian like, what if dystopia was the world that we're living in and um for like, just this sort of like a pandemic highlights these like ideas that uh, the world around us was is not, it's it's perhaps like, not the normal like, you know, it's clearly dystopian and like, looking forward to a utopia is um, perhaps not that uh, or with like the ideas associated with the utopia I'm just thinking like in terms of um, queer communities and marginalized groups and minorities finding that these spaces of free existence are um, revolutionary and you know like a resistance I think that makes a lot of sense like in a society that is so highly characterized by a hyper individualization or so so characterized by um this universalization of identity this homogenous way of being i think just a simple act of like free existence or just some sort of a divergent act of existing um beyond those norms i think that in itself is resistance you know that is in itself is some sort of a revolt or some sort of a protest against what is the norm, even if it is just a free expression of identity. Like it's not even something that is artificial. Like I think it is just this establishment of what is, you know, what comes naturally to you. I think that in itself is like that resistance in, um, a society that doesn't want you to do that so yeah for sure that is um and disco and nightclubs and you know gay dance clubs like those are definitely um spaces and communities where a lot of the where there's, you know that resistance that movement that revolution gets a lot of empathy it gets a lot of more it gets a lot of power it gets um a lot of Right in itself, to you know, like what does it mean for all of these individuals and a bunch of these people um, going and entering these spaces, existing in these spaces, and saying that and like finding that community there, and like you know, saying that this is our idea of the normal, this is our idea of like a free society, this is where we feel like we belong, and we want to exist in sp- spaces where we belong um i think that's that's just really really cool yeah
0: well um i feel like for the sake of time we could we could really go on for three hours um (laughs) but i feel like at least for this episode i'm really glad that we covered everything that we did and i also do feel that you know these ideas of resistance that you talked about wouldn't have been possible either, I, I'm sure saliently through the growing movements of, of resistance that were kind of um, of being um, engendered in India at the time. Um, and, and I feel like um, India has always been, and I, I want to say this, you know, while acknowledging the severity of the Hindu nationalism, and the um, inexcusable violence of the state right now. I also, you know want to highlight the great moments of resistance that have always existed in India and will always exist in India. And I feel like um, I don't know, highlighting these these um, musical moments also does shed light on, um, the utopias that we create around us, but also the moments of um, intense realism that we create around us. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I think, again, it pushes us to, to further um, contend with existing in a paradox, you know, whether it's a hopeless helplessness, whether it's a future mm-hmm. nostalgia, um you know i think understanding that our ideas of time and space and temporality are never going to be the same again um is the first is is a huge step in um maybe understanding some of these um, understanding the future yeah
1: mm-hmm.
0: um well with that being said i want to Thank you, Rhythm, from the from the bottom of my heart, for joining me for this first episode. Um, for everyone tuning in, don't worry, Rhythm will be back. This is something we are going to be continuing for um, the foreseeable future. Foreseeable future. I mean, um, at least the summer. Okay, at least the summer. Um, I have in problems, honestly, but you know, we're definitely coming back. This. Um, Conversation about disco, dance, and music, and India is being separated into four parts. So there's so much more we are going to say, so much we have to say, and so many regions of India that we have to cover as well. Um, but um, overall, I'm just happy that, you know, me and Rhythm are at an end of, of the semester. I'm just glad that we were able to talk about something that we both really love. Um, rhythm any words to sign off with
1: yeah thank you so much for um having me on this podcast i think um just you know we are times we're living in man. like i think if if nothing else i think this conversation and this collaboration that we um just explored i think we just like Made me think about and helped me like reconnect and find those ways that we can still reconnect with people and you know feel like I belong in some sort of a community um, where I just get to have these like conversations with you um, and get to understand a lot more or maybe connect with a lot more of my history and like our collective past as we're struggling to imagine like a collective future. Like I think this is a good time um in times when we're so uncertain about what's to come i think um if there's nothing like i mean i'm sure there are productive things coming out of it but if nothing then it's just you know good to connect with where and what we come from and if if nothing else i have i just found really cool and really Oh, rhythm seems to have cut off. Um,
0: But in any case, I just want to say thank you to everybody for
1: tuning in this week. Keep on dancing, and this is nightclubbing.